get into our study this morning. We are looking at one of our essential elements. We looked at, uh, when we started this series, we looked at the doctrine of inspiration, that God breathed out his word and used, obviously, human means to record it. But God speaks. God has a desire to communicate, to let his will be known, to reveal himself to us who otherwise would have no way of knowing him. This morning we're going to look at the authority of the Bible, the fact that the Bible can tell us what to do. As we come to this study this morning, let's, uh, let's ask God's blessing on our minds, our hearts, as we open his word once again. Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to, first of all, Lord, have your complete recorded will for us, all that we need to know for life and godliness in this world, in our hands. Thank you that we have probably in our homes many copies, many translations. We do um, think of those that, that, that don't have that, that are, would make costly trades just to have a page or two of your scriptures. And so we, we pray, Father, we might come with uh, a sense of gratitude, a, a sense of expectancy, a sense of humbled and obedient hearts as we, we learn that your word is authoritative. It has the right to speak into our lives. And we have the responsibility, the duty to respond to it in obedience. And uh, Lord, we know there's things we, we don't understand, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit that, that guides us into truth, that helps us understand these things, and uh, th that as we search it out, we come to find blessing as you reveal these things to us. And so we pray this morning, Father, you just uh, uh, direct all of us uh, through your word, and that these words that I speak this morning would be yours and not my own. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, I was raised at least in my childhood in what was called a, uh, as a military brat, or in my case, an army brat. Uh, back then, before there was focus on the family and all these ministries to parents and all those kind of things, um, a lot of inexperienced dads transferred their military training into how they raised their kids. Um, if you were told to do something, you were expected to do it immediately, without question, and usually with a yes sir attached to it. Uh, my friends, um, many of whom were also military brats, uh, used to joke that if we were told to jump, the only acceptable question was how high. Discipline for disobedience was usually very swift and severe. Uh, for instance, when I was about seven or eight and losing my teeth, my dad, who was a frustrated dentist, was always wanting to help pull our tooth out. I would always uh, fear that. I would let them hang on by a thread until they were almost accidentally fell out. Uh, one night, my brother and I were carrying on long after we were put to bed, and um, my dad was getting uh, quite frustrated with us. He'd already been back to the bedroom to exhort us and, and uh, remind us we need to get to bed, stop fooling around. But we carried on, and we continued to go. And finally he said, Brian, if I hear one more peep out of you, I'm going, uh, I'm coming in there and I'm getting that loose tooth out. Well, you can all guess what happened next if you know me. Peep. And with that, my dad jumps up off the couch and takes a handful of strides down the short hallway from the 
living room to my bedroom, pins me to the mattress, and instead of pulling the tooth out, he pushed it backward with his thumb and down my throat. And that was pretty traumatic. But what quickly hit me after that was I wasn't getting a quarter from the tooth fairy because I didn't have anything to put under my pillow. Very, very uh, memorable experience, as you might imagine. You see, a lot of us have experiences with people in positions of authority that make our relationship with the concept of authority a difficult one. Add to that our flesh that is bent to not want to yield to someone who's in authority and telling us what to do and not do. So we will have to try to set aside our negative experiences and emotional sense of things when we look at today's essential element, the authority of the Bible. Let's establish a working definition and description of the authority of the Bible. Working definition is authoritative words are words that impose obligations on the lives of their readers and hearers. To say that the Bible is authoritative is to say that it governs all areas of human life. It speaks entirely and completely to everything that we should ever need to know to be pleasing to God. There are a great many things we probably don't know, and I'm sure a great many things in the mind of God that we might never know. But we have all that we need to know to be pleasing to God. And it speaks to every part of our life. I was thinking that the world is in great confusion. They're wondering what's up from down. And I think sometimes even though we react to the fact that God has the power to command us to do or not do things, it should be a place of peace for us. This description continues quite lengthily here. God by nature is the supreme authority in the universe, governing the lives of all his creatures. When he speaks, creatures must obey or bear the consequences of disobedience. The Bible is his word, and therefore human beings must obey all aspects of it in every area of their lives. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that by saving faith, a, quote, Christian believes to be true whatever is revealed in the word. For the authority of God himself speaking therein and acts differently upon that which every particular passage contains. In other words, God's not always telling us, do this, do this, do this. Sometimes he's saying, don't do this. Or sometimes he's guiding us by his wisdom for us to consider what would be the best course of action. Yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings or the warnings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. This is not to say that the content of Scripture is, I translated this because it was a little bit odd how it stated it, but is measured by human standards of what is right and wrong, true or false. In other words, we don't come to the Scriptures and act as the judge. A great many people in this world today do that. This doesn't fit. This doesn't conform to current mores or norms of society. Exact opposite. Rather, Scripture is itself the very standard, the ultimate criteria of what is true and right. Nor should we restrict the authority of Scripture to some narrow sphere of human life, such as religion or worship. Scripture governs the religious life, but before God, all of life is religion in the sense that we are to do everything to the glory of God. Scripture is the supreme guide as to how to glorify God in all of life. 
So, however difficult it may be in social environment, the Christian must be bold to obey the Bible, not only in church, but in the workplace, in intellectual life, in science, philosophy, law, especially politics, the arts, culture, commerce, and entertainment. Believers must, of course, respect the fact that Scripture focuses on redemption rather than general culture. But that redemption itself is cosmic, meaning all-encompassing, everything about this world. The removal of the fall's curse from all creation and the reconciliation of all things to God. Remember, we talked about the millennial kingdom, how there will be an overarching authority in that kingdom that Jesus establishes on earth when he returns. And that rule will govern everything, every aspect of life, not just religious. The Bible's authority extends over all areas of human life. That's from the Lexham survey of theology. Now, we've already established that God speaks. We're looking at the fact that God speaks authoritatively, and for our purposes, we're kind of I mean, that's a very broad concept, the concept of authority in the scriptures. We're really narrowing it down to what God himself says and does in the world and in our lives. And I think it's helpful if we kind of look at this comparison and contrast. We have the concept of authoritative leadership, which we're talking about the Bible being authoritative. And we're talking about God or Once Jesus Christ came to the earth and he was again returned to heaven where all rule has been given to him again as a man, not only as God, but authoritative leadership is a sense of what we're looking at when we talk about the authority of the Bible, as opposed to authoritarian leadership. We probably, if you're old enough and you've had a job or you're 16 or worked in the workplace, you kind of already instinctively know the difference between the two. With God, who speaks authoritatively and acts authoritatively, his authority is self-derived. That is, he is the ultimate authority. Nobody gave anything to him. He possesses it all. With men, people who are authoritarian, they take authority to themselves. They have a sense that they are self-derived in their authority. And he has, speaking of cults, many cult leaders have acted in just this way. They dominate. They confuse. They suppress. They deceive. The next concept is, but among men, including even Jesus, even Jesus, being God, had the right to be authoritative He said, my authority has come from the Father. I don't even speak something unless the Father tells me to speak it. What a beautiful, beautiful model. Jesus realized that there is this proper, cosmic, biblical chain of command, and that his Father was his authority that he submitted to, and he received from the Father authority as well. So this is conferred by God as a stewardship responsibility. It's a trust, and it helps us think about all kinds of different authority, whether we're, a, we're an employer, whether we are a manager, 
whether an elder, whether a parent, that authority comes and is conferred by God. It's not for us. It's a stewardship responsibility. On the other hand, among men, it's conferred always, but many times abused. Many times abused. Going out and beyond the boundaries of what those duties were required in one in a place of leadership. And we probably have experienced that if you're old enough. Or it can be taken by force or deception. People overthrow governments by mere power, not because they had the right to, but they had the power to. Or they, through intrigue, deceive somebody to handing over authority and granting it to them. This is what Satan did in the garden, did he? Man and woman were set in the garden. They were vice rulers. They were given all this authority over creation. But Satan came along and deceived. But he deceived Eve, and Eve implored her husband to violate willfully God's authority. As a result, an authority has been handed over to Satan. And it's, it's a realm. And God has granted Satan some level of, of authority, he is the prince of the power of the air. He is the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. He does have a certain realm that he can control, but he received it abusively through deception. And finally, the purpose is very important, to care for and to serve those that are under them. Authoritative leadership is servant leadership. Its purpose is to provide and protect the people that are under that authority. We sung a song, and we talked about this in the Old Testament and the law, how often God is the one who comes alongside the widow. He is the father to the fatherless. And over and over again in the law of Israel, God says, you are to look out for these people, not just the leaders, but the people themselves to care for the people that were disadvantaged or vulnerable or without resources. In authoritarian leadership, the purpose is perverted to serve oneself at the expense of the people under them. Pretty much that's just about every human government right now. Not that there aren't some good people in government. Thank God for them. There are people that do go to serve the people, to go do the work of the people, to help make order civically among the lives of the people they serve. But we know way, way more of those people are out for themselves. They're becoming millionaires in the space of a two-year term in Congress. What's going on there? Are they serving the people or are they serving themselves? So this gives us a picture of it. Because when we come to Ephesians chapter 1, if you turn there, we have a beautiful passage that kind of talks about this concept of authority with several different Greek words that will give us some insight into how authority in the Bible works its way out through people that God uses to speak his word, and then the word itself as it comes to us, that we should yield ourselves as if Jesus himself is still speaking to us. God is still speaking to us. 
the leaders of the early church are still speaking to us because they are, right? So Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll pick up in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. There's three what's here. What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And the third thing Paul wants our eyes to be enlightened about, which we'll focus on, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us to believe? Now, I've highlighted these words in yellow because we'll come back to them. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me stop right there. What that's saying is, there is a sense that we are also members of the body of Christ. Christ is the head, we are the members, we are the rest that completes him, so to speak. And the things that have been given to the Son are also given to us by extension. The fullness of him, Jesus, who fills all and is in all. There's a sense, we'll come back to this shortly, that there's certain realms of conferred authority that we have just because we are members of the body of Christ. We are followers of Jesus. And that makes it all the more important that our speech, our attitudes, our behavior conform in obedience to his will so that we look like him in the world. And we'll see how that is its own level of authority in the affairs of men. Now, as we come to this next section, we're going to look at some, some of these aspects of authority that show up in Ephesians chapter 1. First of all, the authority of position. That's the word that's translated authority in Ephesians 1. It's a Greek word, exousia. One who has the right to speak or act. As opposed to someone... There's a lot of people that speak and act, the authoritarian person, but they don't have the right to do it. This is a, an all-encompassing sense of authority. That is, because it's conferred, if I stand within the boundaries of that authority, I have the right to speak and to act. The second concept is the authority of function. That's the word dunamis. We obviously, you've heard the word dynamite comes from that, but it doesn't mean explosive power. It means one has the power to speak or act. That is, there is some, some force or energy that someone holds that gives them the power to accomplish something. Not just say it, but to do it. And then related to this, there's three words that we looked at. The word strength, might, and dominion. In Ephesians chapter 1, strength is kratos, the power to control. 
My dad definitely had the power to control. I was on the mattress. I wasn't getting away. You see? There is might, excuse, exceptional capability, the strength of his might. He is brought forth from the dead. There is an overarching kind of power that is, that is kind of more explosive and obvious, and it's potential. And then there is dominion, kuriatus. That's the power to govern, the word dominion. These all kind of work together in that passage in Ephesians chapter 1 because they're talking about the, the spiritual energy to bring a dead body back to life, especially one that had been judged for our sins, raised and seated at the right hand of the Father, where there is this concept of dominion, this, this power to govern, but also the right to govern. And then finally, there's the authority of person. One has the moral power by virtue of exemplary character and conduct to draw and influence others to willingly obey, follow, and sacrifice. This is a characteristic of great leaders, even humanly speaking. Think about generals who have the power to direct somebody to go into a hail of fire, whether cannon, small arms, and the commitment of people, the confidence of people in the military to without question obey. This is an earned kind of authority on the basis of how people observe someone in authority. Do they operate authoritatively? Do they operate as servant leaders? Does their words match their conduct? This is a wonderful thing as we come to this next section, and that is Jesus exhibits all three of these, does he not? He has the right to rule, the right to direct, to speak, to act authoritatively. He has the power to function in the role without hindrance, and he has the earned authority of person because John chapter 1 says that he was equal with God, but he humbled himself. He took on flesh. He became the representational power in this world of the Father. And the beautiful thing that John says in chapter 1 verse 14 is that Jesus was not domineering. Jesus was not oppressive. He was full of grace. That's the first thing it says. He was full of grace. He came to be a servant leader, to put others' needs in front of his. And he was also full of truth. That is, there was a consistency in his behavior, his words, that people began to trust. Those that began to understand who he was. And so we've come to this next section, section. We're going to look at a few of these places, and we'll see these words pop up again. Turn to, turn to Luke chapter 4. How many are watching the, uh, the third season of The Chosen? Anybody see, seen them yet? Oh, please, please go watch these. This season is great um, because we're, this passage, as it got played out, I was like, oh, 
This is just how I imagined it. You know, it's really neat. But please look at that. Because there's two concepts of authority. The one we, we have, I think this was uh, the episode before this most recent one last week, was Jesus in this scenario in Luke chapter 4 where he comes to preach his, his first public message to his hometown of Nazareth. They, they, they jogged the chrono- chronology around, of course, for little artistic purposes. But if you look at it, this was the first message that Jesus actually preached. Because it says in Luke 4, he had his temptation, and then he went, goes to Nazareth and begins to teach. But the second episode, which was last week, was conferred, transferred authority. Jesus sends out the 12, and he gives them the message to authoritatively speak and announce that he is the Messiah coming. He'll be to your town. But he also authenticates that message. He gives the disciples the power to heal and to cast out demons. Not a, der- a self-derived power by any, sp- any stretch. And, and how, um, how that episode works for them trying to like wrap their mind around, are we really going to be able to do this? I mean, you know, a natural question. They've seen Jesus do it, but now he's giving them the power, the dunamis, and he's also giving them the exousia, the right to heal, to cast out demons. So, Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Um, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. This is after his temptation. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to uh, Nazareth, uh, where he had been brought up, and was as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed him. He opened the book, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Sounds like somebody with a lot of authority, doesn't it? And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say then, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And then Jesus kind of turns the table because he knew the hearts of the people. He knew how it was going to play out. And he said, then no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever you, we heard you have done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now what he's saying is, you Jews think that you're privileged and you get to hear from God any old time. And you stand sometimes in judgment of God's words instead of obedience and submission to them. You know, you have a characteristic throughout the Old Testament of being a stiff-necked and stubborn people. Because so many times the prophets come and you don't listen. And there's people desperate outside of the fold, the Gentiles, 
And God has always had a heart for the world. And he goes back to these accounts of the Old Testament and says, hey, yes, I'm coming to you, but you're not ready to hear me. You think I'm Jesus, the guy that used to pick up tools and go work. And I'm the son of God. Well, he goes on to say, and all the synagogue, they understood what he was saying, was, were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up, cast them out of the city, and let them to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw them down the cliff. Now, you know, this is a, this is a small little town, Nazareth. Do you realize the people that were doing this were probably some of his relatives, his friends, his neighbors? This is what was happening. They didn't accept his authority, even though the words had already come about the miracles, the things he was doing. Now notice a different response. He came down to Capernaum, city of Galilee, verse 31. He was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were also amazed at his teaching, for his message was what? With authority. With a sense of the right to say these things. And there was a man in the synagogue possessed by a spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And notice Jesus' response. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon all of them. They began discussing with one another, What is this act? What is this message, this word? For with authority, exousia, the right to speak and act, and with power, dunamis, the ability to make it happen, to not just say the words, but to make it come true. He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Beautiful, beautiful passage. His message with authority, with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits. And notice, after this happened in verse 41, the demons also were coming out of many others that he healed and cast out, crying out and saying, you are the son of God. And rebuking them, he would not allow the demons to speak because they knew him to be the Messiah. It's like James says, the demons believe. They intellectually assent to Jesus' place. But obviously they don't submit. In Luke chapter 8, we might not spend any time there, but just to remind you, in Luke chapter 8, Jesus was asleep in the, in the hold of the boat. They're fearing for their lives. They can't wake him up. He's exhausted from ministry. And finally, he says, men, where's your faith? And all he says is, be still. And instantly, the storm stops and becomes smooth as glass. And says that the disciples feared. <laughs> yeah, that is big power to act. And Luke chapter 7, we will turn here because I love this passage. Luke chapter 7, we see in the last, chap in the last passage, the wind and the waves obey. Creation obeys Christ. You know, how much more as his creation should we? Luke 7 the centurion with great faith. Verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse, 
in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a certain centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking them to come and save the life of the slave. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying uh, to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under exousia, authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes, and to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith such great faith you see the centurion being a military man he understood people that have the right to rule the power to rule and the strength to make things come to be and he acknowledged in jesus all three of those senses of authority he also understood something else he understands the power of authority to direct and to bind direct and divine. That is, with a word, you can enact something that is equal to law, basically. I'm an insurance property adjuster, and we are given authority. It's called fiduciary power to bind, meaning as a fiduciary, I have to act in the best interest of the company as well as the person who has the claim. And I can say based on that authority, to a vendor, take care of this, we'll pay for it. I had a customer who says, well, that's not good enough. Can you send an email? Can you send something written? And I said, I don't have to. I already talked to the vendor. I have acknowledged this needs to be done. I have conferred authority for them to do it. You don't need anything written. That's a, that's a big responsibility. Because when I make a mistake, it could cost the company <laughs> A lot of money if if i if i verbally say something so you be careful you know when you learn about this you be careful what you say because you have bound this multi-million company to do what you've agreed to do you see this also this concept in matthew 18 where the concept of church discipline comes up and jesus says in conclusion to the congregation who's enacting church discipline to an unrepentant and rebellious brother or sister, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth is loosed in heaven. Tremendous conferred authority to the church to maintain the purity of the church. And of course, Matthew chapter 28, let's turn there. Very familiar. Great that uh, James and James are up here representing what that little that, that new group wants to do as we want to carry out the great commission and we'll pick up verse 18 jesus came up and spoke to them that is the 12 the 11 at that point saying all authority all exousia all the power 
uh, all the authority and the right to rule is been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Command there is make disciples. Of course, you do it three ways. You go, you find unbelievers that don't know the gospel, they repent, you baptize them. They acknowledge the authority of Christ. That's part of what baptism is doing too. I'm taking the first step of obedience to the Lord. And then you teach them to obey, observe the commands of Christ. To be a person who responds by habit, not perfectly, but in reverent obedience to what Jesus tells us to do. And there's multitude other places. We don't have the time to go through it. But the concept of authority through God, through Jesus Christ, through the, the leaders of the church who recorded this word, is that authority comes down to us. Some of it is for us to submit to. Some of it is for us to work within as we exert and are agents of authority to this world, especially the authority to make disciples. That's why in Acts chapter 4 and 6, the occasions where, where the disciples are healed and they're called in in front of the religious leaders, they said, you got to stop doing this. you got to stop stirring things up. you got to stop preaching about this man, Jesus, who we've crucified as a criminal. And they said, well, as to whether this is the case or not, that's for you to decide. But we cannot stop preaching and teaching Jesus. And no one can make us, basically is what they're saying. We have authority. And so it is. In conclusion, we live in a world that doesn't understand these things. People want their rights, but they don't want their responsibilities. Rights are good. And we have conferred beautifully through our Constitution, a Bill of Rights to us. But if you're taught in the civics class the way I was, rights go hand in hand with responsibilities, with duties. And we live in a world that is oriented towards options and choices to consider and to weigh out and for me to stand in judgment of. You know, people talk about, I got options in hand, whether it's a marriage, whether it's job you know they get their nose out of joint over the smallest thing and they're ready to bolt commitments to churches to relationships but is it any wonder that the world is filled with anxiety and fear they're constantly having to figure everything out on their own to hold it all together and that's exhausting we are called to an obedience orientation to have a responsive heart to the wisdom and direction of God's word, the Bible, just as if it was from his mouth to our ear. And actually it is. This is a path to blessing and peace. I know I date myself, but there is a wonderful song I heard over and over again growing up. Maybe you, younger people still know it if you've ever had a hymn book in your hand. It's a song called Trust and Obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides still, and with all who will trust and obey. Not a burden we bear, 
Not a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet we will sit at his feet or will walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do. Where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, you, you acknowledge that there is a beauty in childlike faith. And sometimes we have gotten full of ourselves. We want to stand in judgment of your word. We want to decide what we will and won't do, whether, whether we think it's good for us or not, or whether it's convenient or not, or whether it's worth it or not. But you extol the beauty of childlike faith where we just, we hear your voice we trust you, we believe you, and we go about doing and speaking what you call us to do and speak. Thank you for the peace, the joy, the blessing, the rest that comes in obedience. Help us to have hearts that lean hard in that direction. I praise in Christ's name.